Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Mock Trial Flight School. In this episode, I will be discussing theme and theory. I'm taking a step back as I'm getting ready to cover opening statements soon. And I realized that before I can do that effectively, we need to have talked a bit more than we did in our witness preparation episode one about how to develop a theory of the case and to successfully execute a theme throughout the case. And to deliver a great opening statement, you need to have a foundation in those in those things, theory and theme. So backing up a little bit to cover those things in this episode three. Theory and theme is something that in the regular course of practicing law, a lot of attorneys do by intuition and by the seat of their pants, you might say. In fact, to be honest, before coaching mock trial, I can say that I never really spent a lot of time thinking about theory and theme of my case because it was something that I just naturally gravitated to and did in the course of my law practice. I never took a mock trial or trial law class while I was in law school. So this is something that you pick up through going to the courtroom and having to put together your plan and put together your case and prepare your witnesses. And over time, you learn the ropes and you see what other attorneys do and you and you build a knack for it. I do relate it back to those first few days of law school when I remember in my contracts class, one of my older crotchety professors who'd been around for years and years and years. In fact, I believe it was the very first day of law school. He said to us, you're not here to learn the law. And of course, I don't think I was the only one who immediately thought to themselves, well, if I'm not here to learn the law, then am I wasting my time? But he concluded that remark by saying, you're here to think like a lawyer, to learn to think like a lawyer. Not a liar, a lawyer. My dad would say they're the same thing. And so as we worked through law school and we used this case study method where we constantly read and then we came back into class and we discussed these cases and their outcomes and the reasoning and the conclusions that the judges would make in the cases, you do begin to realize and understand that law school is about critical thinking and analysis and being able to take any set of facts and go out and find the law and find the information that you need to to support your case. And I'm going to relate that to developing a case theory, that critical thinking, that ability to analyze as we work through this episode. So with that, let's get into the podcast show. So why have a case theory at all? You have a case theory because it actually controls everything that you're going to do throughout the case. Like I was saying before in my intro, a lot of times lawyers do this instinctively as they exercise their discovery and their trial preparation and they're getting ready for trial. They instinctually recognize by looking at 
what they've learned about the case through that first meeting with a client and subsequent meetings and realizing that in order to win this case, they have to persuade the judge or the jury of certain things and that there's going to be some key issues that it's all going to boil down to. And that brings us to case theory. So it controls your discovery, your trial prep. In the case of mock trial, your discovery or your affidavit statements, and you look at those and you find out through those what the key issues are, and that's going to control how you prepare for the direct examination, the witness performance, and the cross-examination, and so on. And it controls your opening statement. The opening statement, you'll use principles of primacy and recency to introduce the case theory and the theme and to have it set into the mind of the jury or the judges in a way that it's very memorable and will flow with your facts in a way that it makes sense and is convincing and compelling. In addition to controlling the opening statement, the case theory also controls what it is you're going to ask question-wise, during direct and cross-examination. It helps you to also simplify because you'll eliminate a lot of questions that you don't need to ask during direct and cross-examination by being organized and by knowing what's your case theory. There's nothing more annoying to me as a judge uh, when I'm hearing a case or even as a lawyer when I'm going up against an adversarial attorney and the attorneys are spending their time on facts and information and law that I know has nothing to do with the outcome of the case. In other words, they're floundering or fishing because they haven't taken the time to really solidify what their case is about. You need to make those decisions beforehand, if at all possible. Now, there will be rare occasions where you might, realize during the course of a trial that you've been making going around the track in a constant right turn and then all of a sudden you realize wow we need to turn left here or else we're going to lose this case and it could be because you have some surprising facts something comes out at the trial that you weren't expecting who knows next the case theory also controls we're talking about the things the case theory controls it also controls what's said in your closing argument in fact the closing argument is when you really pull the whole case theory together because that's your chance to argue why it makes the most sense, why it's the most compelling, why your facts add up, how those add up to support your law, and why it is the most persuasive in the case. So closing argument is controlled by your case theory. And lastly, your case theory also controls what will be in your proposed jury charges. Attorneys structure jury charges. That's the law that's outlined for the jury and read to them and disclosed to them as the, the questions and the way in which they should decide the case. You want to be very strategic if you're a lawyer in crafting those jury charges in a way that if you've proven a certain case theory, those charges support that theory, and so the jury naturally will select the answers you hope they will as they go through those charges. So those are the various things that your case theory controls. We're talking about both case theory and theme, and I want to talk about why we have a case theory a little bit more 
and why we have a theme. And as we mentioned, first of all, we have the case theory because it controls everything we're going to do at the trial. It controls what our case is about. We also have the case theory in order to help us organize and limit and select what it is we need to go through and go over during the trial. So those are the main reasons. So what does the case theory consist of anyway? Uh, do Is it just a list of all the facts that matter in the case? No, that's, that's not all it is. It's, uh, I like to break the case theory down into three parts. The legal theory, the factual theory, and the persuasive theory. And a lot of times we get confused, or at least students do, about uh, one or the other of these, and they, they tend to lump them all together, and they tend to be lumped under factual theory. You know, we're going through and we're like, oh, this is what happened in this case. This is what this is how it happened. And, and that may be the case, but it may be that that fact theory does not prove our legal theory. I was just listening to a story about some Russian, I guess you could call them hackers, but they were smart Russians who figured out how they could beat slot machines in Vegas and other places around the world. It was this one particular model from one particular company. And what they figured out was that it was, uh, they could use servers, uh, computer servers, to run some algorithms and determine what pattern the slot machines were playing using uh, some software they could put on their iPhones to send signals back to the servers in Russia and receive feedback from those. And they could figure that out because of the seed that's used to do random number generating on the computers. Computers aren't very good at generating random numbers, believe it or not, because computers are good at running algorithms that are specific and deterministic. And so when you try to make them do random things like you want a slot machine to do, they struggle with that. Well, uh, very smart people had figured out how to hack the system without ever touching the slot machines mind you, and so it made it a difficult case to win. Factually, it was clear. They had their hand in their pocket, and they were doing something, and they were winning at the slot machines. But you couldn't, even though you know something's happening, you can't press charges until you meet the legal definition of what it means to be interfering with the slot machines. And so it took a little more than that. It took them finding the actual software on the iPhones and determining how they were manipulating these machines and all to actually, and then matching that with the legal criteria for what it takes to be committing a crime. So you just have to know that as you put together your factual theory, you need to look back at the other part of the case theory that we're talking about, which is the legal theory. The legal theory, the factual theory, and the persuasive theory all together are what equal the case theory. We're going to talk about each of these in some more detail so that hopefully you'll clearly understand them. The legal theory, the simple way to describe that is that it's the law that entitles you to win. That law during the course of a trial is laid out through the jury instructions and through your ability as the attorney to incorporate the most important aspects of the law into your opening and your closing, and to some extent by the way you ask questions and the questions you ask during the trial. Although those, you know, direct and the case in direct, the case in chief, and then the cross-examination, that's mostly where you're developing your fact theory. The law goes into jury instructions. You 
allude to it in identifying the verdict that you want the jury to render at the end of trial during your opening. Uh, and you, of course, discuss it when you're arguing the case during closing. You want to study, refer to, and understand what statutes and case law apply in your case before you begin trial so that you can derive your case theory, as I was talking about in the example with the slot machines, so that you can derive your case theory in a way that your facts will prove the legal elements necessary to gain the verdict that you want in the case. Now, looking at factual theory more specifically, some of this may be obvious to you. The first aspect of factual theory is that you need to lay out what happened in the case. If you're presenting your case in chief, as we mentioned in the episode on uh, Cross when we were talking about the case in chief, you will be going sequentially usually in a way that you're going scene by scene and explaining what happened. In fact, in your opening remarks, you may even want to walk the jury through uh, scene by scene what's going to be laid out during the case so that you clearly present your fact theory. That'll depend on time and strategy and what's going to make the most compelling opening remark. But you definitely want to end up supporting your overall case theory with what happened in the case that's most important. And again, you may leave out things that happened in the case that end up not supporting your overall case case theory. That's where these three components, the fact theory, the legal theory, and the persuasive theory all come together into the one case theory. Fact theory also comprises the ways that you get a handle on the facts. Uh, for instance, what order should you present things? Should you go chronologically? Do you want to emphasize specific scenes and key facts more than others in order to better draw out the inferences that can be drawn from the facts? Of course, you want to focus on facts and not conclusions. It's the conclusions that you argue in your closing argument using the combination of persuasive legal and fact theory. You're not asking for that generally as part of your fact theory, which is drawn out during your examinations of witnesses. One way of getting a handle on the facts and what the fact theory should be is to do a proof chart. Uh, I do a very basic one with mock trial students where I just have them take each witness and do an analysis of good facts and bad facts from the perspective that they are coming from in their case. So if they're prosecution, for instance, in a criminal case, then they would look at anything that lends itself towards proving guilt. That would be a good fact. Anything that leans away from proving guilt would be a bad fact. Of course, some facts depending on how you argue them or present them, could be good or bad. You would put those in both columns. And so by doing that, you start to get a handle on the facts and you start to figure out exactly what your fact theory should be. You may want to think about how you can lay your facts out as though they're a movie script and lay them out in a sequence or an order in which you are presenting what should or shouldn't happen in a movie like this with these facts. And that can help you develop your case theory in a way that you clearly present the situation to the jury. Another way that you might want to lay out your fact theory is through identifying the motives of the people involved. And 
making sure that you support those so that you can explain why the people involved act in the way that you're claiming through your case theory that they're acting. So those are important facts to focus on, the facts that support your motives. You also want your facts to make sense. Dig into your affidavits, your witness statements, and your other materials, your evidence, to see, okay, this is the story we're going for in our case theory, in our factual theory, part of that. What are all the nuanced facts and information that we can pull together in a way to make this story make common sense? If it doesn't, if you end up with what you might call holes in your case that don't comport with common sense, then the juries and the judges are going to start to struggle with giving you the verdict that you want in the case because they're not able to reconcile it in their heart of hearts. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. And that's why you have your case theory. And that's why you explain the law. And that's why you have your facts. And then lastly, we're going to talk about your persuasive theory, which ties fact theory together with the legal theory to then form the overall case theory. Facts are going to be fighting each other. If you've got a truly contested case, you're going to have facts that seem to help both sides. So how are those reconciled? What's the jury to do? This is where your persuasive theory comes in. The persuasive theory explains to the audience, why as the attorney and and why for your client should win the case as a matter of fairness and justice. In extreme cases, this could even go so far as the concept of jury nullification where fairness and justice dictates a verdict in your favor despite the facts and the law. A persuasive theory can be a very powerful thing it's always got some power because again you've got those competing facts and without being able to persuade a jury as to why the particular fact theory that you're presenting has a greater likelihood of being true then you're going to be up against the wall at best you may get a draw which you know if you've got the burden of proof is not going to be good enough the persuasive theory is what helps break the draw if there is one, mock trial type cases where there's pretty much always a draw, then the persuasive theory is where you set yourself apart from the other side. It's where you score big points if you're doing a competitive type mock trial situation. And it's where you can uh, lean into your theme of your case that you tie everything together with through your opening, through the way you may present questions and direct and cross and, of course, in your closing, where you use some of your nice catchphrases and theme wording to entertain as well as persuade the listener. Ultimately, as you combine the fact theory, the legal theory, and the persuasive theory, you want it to pass what you might call the grandmother test. Another phrase I like to call is the elevator pitch. You know, it's nice if you can get on an elevator and in 15 seconds between floors, you can tell somebody I should win because, or my case is about this. 
that's what the grandmother test is. It's your ability to summarize your case in one simple paragraph where you use powerful language that is not using complicated legalistic language, but instead is using simple, powerful language and incorporates your very best facts into a coherent story that also explicitly or implicitly refutes the worst facts that are against you and explains what this case is about. And then after hearing that case theory statement, your grandmother will should say and hopefully will say that you should win the case because you want it to just make sense to the grandma. Grandma, wouldn't you agree in a situation like this, they're guilty or no way they're guilty. This is a travesty. That's the reaction you want from your case theory. I'm going to summarize by giving you a list of 10 rules, commandments that you might use to ensure that you have a great case theory. I recommend you put these in a checklist and and ask yourself before you spend the hours that it's going to take to do a great opening or a great closing and to prepare all your witnesses, does your case theory meet these 10 criteria? We've already talked about most of these. One, is it short? Can you give it in that 15 seconds on the elevator? Does grandmother understand it? Two, is it simple? Three, does it satisfy all of the legal requirements? Dealing with students, especially at the high school level, this one's tough. They often don't go and do the legal analysis that's needed to read over the law, the statutes, the cases, digest those, analyze them, and pull out the keywords that they need to make sure they address through their case theory. Four, is it consistent with the facts? Sometimes you have to adjust your case theory because you realize, you know what? It seemed as though it was going to work. But here's a problem that we just cannot overcome as a weakness. Can you sharpen that case theory in a way that you don't have those larger inconsistencies that start to create too much friction? Five. Is your case theory emotionally appealing? Does it does it have some moral blame that it places on the other party in a way that is going to appeal to the common values that we all have as humans? Six, does your case theory explain motives? If it, if it doesn't offer a good explanation, then it's not going to be appealing to the jury because it's going to be confusing and it's not going to add up in a way that you want it to. So does it explain motives? Seven, does it tell a story? Is that story logical? Does it make sense? Does it appeal to these other things that we've been listing? Seven, are you able to use impact words and phrases that will be powerful and a good way to try to do that is through coming up with a good theme that you can use along with your case theory. Nine, are you able to limit yourself to just one solid theory? If not, it may be time to go back and review. 
Because if you're having to go after more than one theory, that means neither one of them is good enough. You're weak. You're not willing to invest in what you know you believe in. And that brings me to number 10. You must believe it. If you can't be the attorney who clearly is supportive of their client, clearly believes their client, feels emotionally impacted by what's going to happen in this case if the jury does not believe your case theory, then why should the jury believe it? You've got to believe it if you expect them to believe it. Once you believe in your case theory, then develop a solid theme around it that allows you to really distill it down for the jury. The theme is a one-sentence distillation that can't be flipped. You want to be careful about thinking about your theme and make sure that if your theme's adopted by the opposing party, could it also be a theme that's for them, like justice? You know, if your theme is justice, could that theme actually be flipped on you? And a lot of times justice is a two-edged sword. So be careful about that. But select a theme that can be distilled down to one sentence. So how do you do this? Uh, one model is to select your best good facts and your worst bad facts and then brainstorm about both of those. Use facts, not conclusions, and brainstorm. Let it flow. I like doing mind maps where you start with a circle in the middle, which might be one of your best facts, and then just kind of start branching off from that with more circles and more circles with ideas and words and phrases until eventually you've got lots of uh, suggestions to choose from. So as you identify your best and worst facts and you've got all of these ideas and you brainstorm, now you can start arguing about the facts. Are those facts admissible? Are they understandable? Is it believable? Is it a hard or soft fact? Do we need to draw any inferences from those? Are those inferences reasonable? Is it is this fact? Is it true? Or what other facts must be true? Are they? Are the facts consistent with common sense? Do they square with the motives that we would expect? Will the facts be encountered be countered by other evidence? Why should the judge or jury believe the best facts and disbelieve the worst facts? So you take all of that just you know, that list of ideas into account and then go back and apply that grandmother test as you develop that theme and distill it down to come up with uh, the right theme for you. Hopefully, by the time you've done your brainstorming, you've reanalyzed your best and worst facts in order to make sure that they all actually will be believable and not be easily countered by other evidence and will be consistent with common sense then you will have an obvious theme that you can then incorporate throughout your case that will be very entertaining, very engaging, and very compelling to the judge. So that's how you do it. That's how you develop your case theory, by developing your legal theory. Take a look at the law. Don't skip that. Look at the statutes. Look at the case law. Determine what it is that the decision's actually going to be based upon when those jury instructions are given or when that judge reviews the case, then develop your facts in a way that you're going to support 
that law in the best possible way. Develop your persuasive theory. You know, why is this version of the facts believable? Make sure it all fits together. Look at your good facts and bad facts. Ensure that the bad facts are not more believable than the good facts in the circumstances that you're going to be presenting your case theory. And then brainstorm and develop that theme that will tie it all together so that you will win your case. And in the case of mock trial, so that you will put on a memorable performance that you and your witnesses can prepare for and present enthusiastically and play the game in the best possible way. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and look forward soon to opening statements. <laughs>